Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be helpful to your medical practices. In this episode, we're talking with an expert rheumatologist about the new array of medications available in the practice of rheumatology. The past two decades have witnessed dramatic changes in the approach to managing rheumatologic conditions. Born of a wider understanding of cellular biology, immunology, and the pathophysiology of inflammation, we've consequently seen an explosion in the development and availability of both biologic medications and small molecules for medical applications. And biologics include monoclonal antibodies, the MABs, and fusion proteins, which are made in living organisms. They have names that take suffixes based on whether they are 1. Chimeric, born of mouse and human, the Iximabs, humanized, the suffix Zumab is taken, fully humanized, Umabs, or fusion proteins, the Septs. These products interfere with cytokine function or production and include the TNF inhibitors such as infliximab, adalimumab, and sertilizumab, the TNF receptor fusion protein, etanocept, interleukin-6 inhibitors such as tocilizumab, interleukin-17 inhibitors such as secukinumab, interleukin-12 and 23 inhibitors such as ustekinumab, as well as T-cell modulators, a betacept, and B-cell modulators such as rituximab, which is a B-cell depleting anti-CD20 antibody. These drugs are administered by intravenous or subcutaneous route. Unlike biologics, small molecules are not proteins. They're not made by recombinant DNA technology and they have the suffix NIB. The molecules we're talking about are Janus kinase inhibitors. Janus was the two-faced Roman god of beginnings, endings, and duality. The Janus kinase enzymes are a family of enzymes associated with cytokine receptors on the surface of cells and a part of the so-called signal transducer and activation of transcription pathway involved in inflammation and immune responses. The complexes sit across the cell membranes with two domains, modulating gene transcription and cell function after an extracellular signal. There are four enzyme complexes called the JAK1, 2, 3, and tyrosine kinase 2 complexes. To put this in some context, erythropoietin and colony stimulating factor activate the JAK2 system. These molecules are available orally. Tofacitinib is a JAK3 and 1 inhibitor. Baricitinib is a JAK1 and 2 inhibitor. It really is all quite complicated. Specific application of these molecules really does require deep knowledge of their actions and side effects, which in the case of the TNF inhibitors may include demyelination and autoimmune phenomena, not to mention sepsis and reactivation of TB, and for the JAK inhibitors, herpes zoster reactivation. Before commencement, screening is normally recommended for TB, HIV, Hep B and C, syphilis, and strongylordes. Vaccination is also recommended. One must be careful to avoid vaccination with live attenuated vaccines, such as measles, microbilla, oral typhoid and polio, zovirex, and yellow fever. It was a great privilege to welcome rheumatology expert Andrew Tarktalk to this podcast to help us understand how to apply this new age of science to the practice of rheumatology. Please welcome Andrew Tarktalk.
Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to uh, come and talk with me about new agents in rheumatology. It's a real privilege and pleasure to have you here today. And we've got a fair bit to talk about, Andrew, because uh, there's been there's been a, a, an amazing change in the way uh, rheumatologists have managed rheumatological conditions in the couple, last couple of years, which I think has been born out of uh, a deep understanding of biochemistry and immunology of inflammatory or all of inflammation and then the development of the biologic and small molecules. And would you agree, Andrew, we've gone from a position of using anti-inflammatories and steroids and disease-modifying agents and perhaps observing to now this incredible paradigm shift of intensive early treatment and uh, a real um, a real uh, emphasis on improving long-term outcomes uh, in rheumatology. And there's, there's a huge amount of science for us to understand. C- can you take us through this, Andrew? We've got, you know, biologics and small molecules. They've hit the scene. They've changed everything. Uh, take us through uh, these sort of new uh, molecules and, and medications that are available to us in rheumatology. Oh, thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me as well. So... I think the new era of biologics and rheumatology has really revolutionised what we do. So if you go back in time, obviously we had the very archaic treatment of gold and the the side effects that came with it. And there still is a place in in rare circumstances for that. And then we come into the age of the methotrexate, leflinamide, what we call the conventional disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. And again, they had their place and they did a good job for a number of people, but there was a rather large proportion of people who had inadequate response, who were developing, for instance, in rheumatoid arthritis, deformity, and then, of course, functional impairment. We used to have a lot of extra articular manifestations, rheumatoid vasculitis, um, things that we don't see anymore, and, and my generation of rheumatologists really has never seen. So I suspect if I saw a rheumatoid vasculitis, I may miss it because it's just so rare these days. And And the rarity of those um, conditions is really attributable to the biologics. And if if we go back in time as well, I think in Australia, we should be very, very proud of the biological history because there was a fellow called Sir Mark Feldman, who was a Melbourne University graduate in 67 and had a PhD at the Weehive. And he was actually one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer, who really looked at synovial fluid and pro-inflammatory cytokines in inflamed joints. And one of the first molecules that was seen in abundance was uh, tumor necrosis factor, so TNF-alpha. And from there blossomed a number of drugs. Really, rheumatology revolutionized the inflammatory um, world because they started to introduce and treat with drugs such as uh, infliximab, atanacept, Um, and all the TNFs that have since come from it. And to just show how they have actually captured the world, if you look at, for instance, 2019, um, Humira grossed, uh, was the highest grossing drug. So it wasn't the most frequently prescribed drug, but in the United States, it was the highest grossing drug. If you look down that list as well, we then go on to other biologics that are used in rheumatology, such as Atanasept. And this is, this is kicking um, drugs like atorvastatin um, right off the scene. So yeah. that happened in rheumatology, but along the way you also saw it happen in oncology, you saw it happen in gastroenterology. So, you know, the rheumatologist, you know, I, I suspect should be proud because we really revolutionise this world. And so now we are able to really um, aim for very low disease activity or really what we call 
uh, remission, basically, of these diseases. And the days of seeing people in the waiting room with functionally deforming disease, the swan necking, the ulnar drift, are a thing of the past. And it's really exploded. So we've gone from blocking molecules such as the TNF blockers to blocking a multitude of other um, other cytokines as well, such as interleukin-6 with tocilizumab. And the recent data coming up uh, timely in tocilizumab in the COVID patients has been fantastic too. We then went into small molecule blockers like the JAK kinase inhibitors, and we've got a number of those to pick from too. And we've also got agents that block co-stimulatory um, molecules where B cells and T cells talk to yeah. and get to, yeah. to each other and antigen presenting cells. We block um, B cells in the form of rituximab. So we now have a plethora of drugs to pick from. Um, and really how we get to that point now is somewhat government limited because of the cost of the drugs. So we have to go through a, a um, if you like, a escalating dose and meet certain criteria to get a patient onto these drugs. But these drugs work, they're excellent, but they do also come with side effects. So that, that gives a bit of a summary as to the timeline and the evolution of how this has come into modern medicine, particularly rheumatology. Um, now, if you look at all these drugs and, and how we measure their efficacy, in rheumatology, for instance, in rheumatoid arthritis, we use what's called the ACR criteria. And that looks at um, what percentage of patients get a particular degree of response. And we're seeing figures in the vicinity of 30% of patients using biologics going into a, almost a completely drug um, remission, so getting responses of 70% improvement. So, uh, sorry, 60% improvement. So we see a rule of 20, 40, 60 um, with what we call the ACR criteria where you improve to a certain degree of I uh, can never remember, but I think it's 20, 40, 70. Um, what what, what, so do, you mean, what do you mean by that, Andrew? What's that, what's that little uh, rule that you're exposing, the 20, 40, 70 or rule? What, what does that mean? It's Yeah, so, so it's actually, you know, in epidemiological trials in rheumatoid arthritis, we talk about an ACR 20, 50 or 70. And, and what that means is, um, for instance, an ACR 20, is a combination of how many or how many people get 20% improvement in the number of swollen joints, tender joints, um, physician assessments, HAC scores, pain scores, and then the same applies to the 50, 70. So they're the epidemiological endpoints, if you like. So how many people achieve an ACR of 70% right. improvement? Okay. And see a, a 60, 40, 20 breakdown in most of the trials, but even some of those trials are now getting better. So what I mean by that, Luke, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit sort of um, roundabout, but 20% of people will achieve a 60% response in most of the trials. 50% of people will get at least a 40% improvement and 70%, uh, sorry, 20% of people will achieve a 70% improvement in their ACR scores. Oh, I see. I thought it would be following so the, that, per that, should that, be following that. the Pareto principle, shouldn't it be? The, the 80, 20 principle. Do you know about the Pareto principle, Andrew? Yeah, it doesn't quite work. No. <laughs> I think that it, it made it a bit more complex and the numbers get confused in my head too. <laughs> I'll have to have a talk to Mr. Kosh. Yeah, okay. So when you say when you say there's that improvement, Andrew, are we talking about inflammatory markers sort of being brought back to toward normal levels, uh, there being no joint inflammation? How, how's it being measured? Um, there's still yeah. going to be some degree of joint I guess some degree of joint damage, I suppose, if you if you undertake radiology. But what what are they measuring exactly with those trials? 
Well, the ACR, so they look at the number of swollen joints and the, yeah. and the number of tender joints. Right. They look, they, and they look at at least three of five improvements in pain or the de degree of disability using a hack. Right. Um, patient global assessment, the physician global assessment, and as you said, the inflammatory markers too. So it's a it's a combined score of, of those parameters. Okay. And, so and that's really the epidemiology behind it, Luke. They're, they're the clinical trial data really that we look at. So there's been there's been this sort of paradigm shift and an incredible understanding. I, I mean I find it incredible that all these the monoclonal antibodies, the understanding of the immunology it's things we can't see. It just befuddles me that people can work this stuff out, Andrew. I don't understand how anyone can work out these various, um, you know, the, the genus kinase uh, receptors and so forth. How they work these things out, I don't understand. But um, can you go through with me? We've got quite a few monoclonal antibodies, the TNF inhibitors. We've got the interleukin inhibitors. How do you choose a molecule? How do you choose one of these uh, drugs to, uh, to for one for one of your patients. Take take me through the process in your mind. What do, what are you doing when you select one of these products? I think one of the one of the shames I think from a clinician and a patient perspective is we do lack head to head trials. Um, yeah. And my cynical view of that is because these drugs, as I discussed earlier, are, are hugely grossing drugs in the world, and I don't think anyone has the gonadal fortitude to put one of their drugs up against another drug for fear of it being shown to be inferior yeah. um, because I think they'll lose market share. Now, in saying that, for instance, there was a recent trial that came out between Rinvoke and Humira. Uh, Humira. Um, they, they're both made by AbbVie. And there was certainly a 10, and this was a non-inferiority trial, but there was a actual trend towards superiority now of one of the oral agents of Jack kinase blocker called Rinvoke over Humira. And Humira was one of the first TNF blockers to come out as well, along with infliximab and Atanasep. So mm. um, we don't have a lot of that head-to-head -head data to help us um, make those decisions. And a lot of it has been ad hoc personal experience. But I think personally, when I have a patient in front of me, I think there's a number of factors one of the first factors that will come up in a conversation, medicine aside, is whether or not the patient is needle phobic or prefer a tablet. Yeah. Um, one of the things I always think about is what's this patient's compliance been like? We've got to know them relatively well before they get to a biologic because they've had to cycle through mm -hmm. conventional disease modifiers such as methotrexate and, and rather, and you get a feel for um, their compliance, I guess. And if I have a non-compliant patient in front of me, Sometimes you will try and choose an infusion because you know they have to turn up. It gets documented yes. and it's in. Yes. Um, and then there's the safety profile in the person in front of you. So, for instance, there are some contraindications with TNF blockers. So if a person was to have um, systemic lupus erythematosus and, and rheumatoid arthritis, and we do have a number of patients who do have these overlap syndromes, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't get a TNF blocker because TNFs can flare up systemic lupus, for instance. There's also data that TNF blockers may um, be a problem if someone has multiple sclerosis in progression of uh, demyelinating lesions. Yes. So yes. the safety that you would look at. Um, I also think about the patient in terms of their age and their comorbidities. So sometimes now we're getting um i guess gutsy enough to use these drugs in older populations too so 
I do have some 75, 80 plus year old patients on biologics. They're few and far between. Yeah. But my rationale yeah. in those populations is to use a drug with a shorter half-life because I feel maybe it's just my own comfort level, but I would feel a lot better if you have a patient who may run into a septic situation, for instance, mm. as you're older, you're obviously more likely to become septic, yes. um, knowing that they have a short half-life. And so if they turn up at an emergency department with a mnemonic process, we stop the drug and it's out of their system relatively quickly as opposed to, for instance, a drug like rituximab, which is hanging around for months and months on end. So you'd really have to twist my arm to give someone who I have, see a lot of comorbidities with uh, a drug like rituximab with complete B-cell depletion. So there are those safety signals, um, and I think about those things. Uh, but And I also think about the age of the patient too. For instance, if they're a young female, which, again, a lot of our cohorts are with autoimmune diseases, and they may be family planning. There are some drugs which are not known in terms of pregnancy risk, mm. lactation. Yes. And then there's the older drugs, which have actually been shown to be reasonably well tolerated, such as the TNF blockers. Very few of them have a great degree of placental transfer. So if I had a patient in front of me who was 28, female, and wanting to potentially start a family, I'd be heading down the path of a TNF blocker. Yes. So there's all those sort of things that come into that um, uh, sort of uh, rationale for treatment choices. And a lot of it is just open discussion with the patient. There isn't a, there's rarely a, re a right or a wrong. Um, and again, it comes down to comfort levels of the physician as well, because a lot of us, for whatever reason, have our favourite drug. We see completely different responses. Uh, there are some drugs that I don't think give us as good a response despite the trial data mm. in the real world yes. than other drugs. Yes. Yes, I think you sort of try and make a drug your friend, don't you? You get used to it and you understand how it works. But there are a lot of choices. There are more choices in rheumatology than there are in gastroenterology. With the TNF, you, you've got a little more TNF choice than us and you've got the interleukin, a few more interleukin blockers. And you're probably far more used to using the uh, uh, the JAK inhibitors um, than we are. They've just come on board for the use in ulcerative colitis. T tell me about the interleukin inhibitors. What, what's your experience there, Andrew? How, how comfortable are you using those? Oh, look, I'm fairly comfortable, particularly with the IL-6 blockers. So we're talking about tocilizumab, which has yes. been around a little bit of time now. I, I think tocilizumab is a great drug. It is when you talk about thought processes too, Luke, um, there has been trial data showing that you can use interleukin-6 without methotrexate. A lot of the TNF, well, the TNF data suggests that you should be using um, a TNF blocker in a rheumatoid population with methotrexate for this concept called immunogenicity to try and reduce anti-production against yes. the TNFs. Yes. So, the interleukin-6s don't have that data associated with them. You can look at it as monotherapy. And for whatever reason out there, and I've never quite got my head around it other than people looking up methotrexate and seeing it's a chemotherapy agent, which we really do not get anywhere near the doses in rheumatology, yes. people despise methotrexate as a generalisation. And there's a lot of people who you know, psychosomatically just want to come off their methotrexate. And so that's another reason you may start them off on uh, IL-6 blockers. Of course, there are other IL uh, interleukin blockers on the market too. There's IL-17 blockers that we use. Yes. Um, 
I and again, IL-17 blockers, we have access to a lot of the time in spondyloarthropathy and psoriatic populations. Um, one of the concerns, I think, and Luke, you'll be well aware of this with the IL-17 blockers, is the propensity maybe to flare inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. Um, and so the IL-17 blockers, for me, are a second choice, to be honest, because okay. I see a lot of whether or not they have clinically evident um, inflammatory bowel disease in the spondyloarthropathy population is not necessarily the case. But you do see a lot of what I describe with patients as leaky guts, you know, uh, you know, diarrhea, malabsorption problems. And I have concerns that the IL-17 blockers may perpetuate that. This is my personal experience. It's not really um, anything that has been borne out that I've read in trials. But, of course, if someone has active inflammatory bowel disease, you'd avoid an IL-17 blocker. But, again, another way that you sort of stratify who you're going to put on a drug. Um, the spondyloarthropathy population just respond very, very well to TNF blockers. I've had very few problems or very few refractory patients um, that have ankylosing spondylitis and don't respond to, um, for instance, a TNF blocker. It's, it's really a pleasure to treat them because they come in not being able to walk, uh, work. They come in with waking up every night, back pain in the morning, not being able to you know, perform their roles as carpenter or carpenters or sports people. And you put them on a TNF blocker and you can rest assured within six to eight weeks they will come back um, and tell you how much better their lives are. And if they don't, either question whether you've got the diagnosis right and otherwise question whether or not this patient may have a functional disorder in front of you as well because very rarely do they not respond to TNF blockers in that population. It's really been a game changer, hasn't it? The, the, there is that problem of immunogenicity that you mentioned and you know, combining it with an immunosuppressant will tend to dampen that down. So, certainly inflammatory bowel disease, there's a loss of function maybe up to 50% over a 12-month period when you start with a TNF blocker and we are encouraged to change to a different choice. Uh, is that the situation that is observed in rheumatology as well? Or if you have methotrexate in combination, is that immunogenicity not such a problem for you? I think it, I think it's a problem in terms of you do see immunogenicity and you can have patients who are plodding along well for five, six, seven years on these drugs, all of a sudden start to yes. lose their efficacy. Um, yeah. And so I think you do see immunogenicity. I think it's a real phenomenon. As opposed to the the gastroenterology world, we don't measure trough levels. We don't um, really go there. We just plop a patient on a drug and away they go. Right. Because we haven't seen that that actually bears to have any clinical significance whatsoever with their response. So the trough levels haven't correlated, from my understanding, in the trials with any um, reduced efficacy in responses. Um, I know it does in the gastroenterology world, Luke, I think, from, from what I've yes. understood of that. Yes, um, but we don't see that in rheumatology. We don't measure it, and it's it's funny that our drugs definitely respond differently in different diseases too. So, as I was mentioning before, in an ankylosing spondylitis population, the TNF blockers melt things away. We yeah. may not see that in rheumatoid, um, and maybe that's because of um, immunogenicity. In the ANK-SPOND world, we don't use methotrexate with the TNF blockers because there's no immunogenicity for whatever reason that may be. Mm. It behaves differently. So certainly in rheumatoid populations, we try and sneak in a bit of methotrexate with the TNF blocker, but in the spondyloarthropathy world, there really is no need. Um, 
so it's a, it, it's bizarre. It's weird. One model doesn't fit all, but yes. certainly the outcomes we have now are much, much better than we had 20 years ago. Andrew, I think what I'm hearing is that you're using the TNF blockers predominantly. You might you might use the IL, the interleukin, one of the interleukin inhibitors like IL-6 or perhaps the IL-12, like 23, like ustekinumab, you might use that, but that's not generally your first choice. Am I right about that? That's not generally your first choice. Um, yeah, I think you're right, and it's it's not because of anything other than you 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 sort of um, choose what you know, and you've had the most experience with yeah. that. But as new drugs come onto the market, particularly the orals, that's that's changed us because patients request them. So we've, I think, and I don't know the data off the top of my head, but as a guess, I would think that TNF blockers and Jack kinase inhibitors as the oral agents yes. are probably the most popular choice. In rheumatology. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the T cell modulation, the that abetacept, and we mentioned rituximab, the B cell modulation, are, are they used very much in rheumatology, or are they considered to be more dangerous? So, uh, no, I think you know quite the opposite. The abetacept data actually, you know, I think by a very small margin shows perhaps even a lower infection risk than the other um, agents. So. One of the selling points of abatacept or Orenzia will be that um, that they will try and uh, sell you the point that their infection rates are lower. Mm. Um, and for instance, abatacept, there has been some data coming out recently that as a second line agent, so for instance, if you fail a TNF and you are seropositive, so anti-CCP or rheumatoid factor positive, it may measure up better than other drugs. So as a second line agent, abatacept might have some very good data. Um, in terms of agents like rituximab, which have longer-lasting um, immunosuppression, uh, I think is a much harsher drug mm. in terms of what it does to the immune system by depleting your B cells. Mm. I do use it. I definitely use it. I try. I don't have to use it all that much in my rheumatoid patients, although I have a number of them on there. One of the beauties about rituximab is we're quite comfortable using it in a, in a population that may have an onco oncological history. So, you know, for instance, someone with a melanoma, someone with malignancy, we tend to go to rituximab. And as you know, rituximab is used in a lot of chemotherapy regimens, yes. so RCHOP, lymphoma, and what yes. have you. And data for rituximab in malignancy is not bad. So we do maybe push towards rituximab in that population. Um, but I, I don't have a lot of patients on rituximab, but I've got a number of them and they do do well, but it just shows, you know, the COVID pandemic, I think, has brought things home where you do wonder about the role of B cell depletion in antibody responses in vaccination. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think it's all a big unknown and we're all flying by the seat of our pants, but for instance, I'm definitely trying not so much with the TNF blockers or what have you, but the B cell blockers, obviously important in making your antibody response. I'm trying to avoid um, rituximab until someone is uh, double vaccinated for COVID at the moment. So I think that this is all based on um, gestalt. It's not based on a lot of evidence at the moment, but I think it passes the pub test. And, you know, I guess in modern medicine, we can't, keep up with whatever's happening half the time. And we do have to use a little bit of 
educated guesswork in what we do. Yes, I think that just these number of choices. I think that's it's phenomenal how many medic, how many products are available for you guys to use. It's it's um, we're almost uh, bamboozled by choice. I think, but uh, uh, with the jack inhibitors, is there anything there that that we should be specific looking after, out for? Or maybe a general practitioner should be looking out for if there's a patient who's been put on a jack inhibitor. Is there something that they need to be aware of? And monitor. I think with a number of so the IL six and the um, Jack inhibitors have a similar adverse effect profile. You can see lipids change, so you can yes. certainly see dyslipidemia creep into the picture. Um, I think with the Jack blockers, there is some data coming out of thrombotic risk. So mm. in America, the FDA pulled the ten milligrams so, um, uh, tofacitinib, which is known as Zeljans in the States was prescribed as 10 milligrams BD. That certainly had a signal for thrombotic events. Yes. Um, and it's had a black box warning. In Australia, we've used five milligram BD dosing and that looks to be okay. Mm. But I think if someone has had a history of uh, venous thrombosis, I would think twice about a uh, jack inhibitor. Yes. Um, wouldn't necessarily stop me using it if we were really backed up against the wall because I also think we need to interpret the data very carefully because a pro-inflammatory state is a pro-thrombotic state. So uh, guilty by association or is it causation, I think hasn't been teased out all that well yet. With respect to screening pre-starting biologics or small molecules, what, what do you do uh, for your rheumatology patients? Are you screening them for... TB and HIV and so forth. Uh, that's all pretty standard. Is it Hep B and Hep C? Is there anything else that you you do specifically in your screening, or that you insist the patients? You know, we're talking about vaccination. Is there something that you insist the patients have before they start these therapies? Yeah, I, I do. As you've said, with Hep B, Hep C, HIV, Pontifiron uh, yes. Um, some some cohorts I would look for strongyloides, um, and some cohorts I would look for syphilis as well. Mm, okay. Yeah. So that does come into the picture a little bit. Um, I do ask everyone to have a chest X-ray. So I do want to know that there's certainly not a GONS focus sitting anywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, you can, you can certainly be bitten in the bum because there have been patients who are either quantiferon negative or completely normal chest X-rays who reactivate tuberculosis, and that's always been a concern. Mm. Um but I think I think you're unlucky if you've got a negative quantifiron gold and a normal chest X-ray. So I think you're, you're fairly safe to go by those those rules. I I must admit I'm a little bit OCD about these things. And every patient I put on a biologic, I've got um, I think it's the British Society of Dermatology have a web page somewhere that I've managed to store and print. And I basically go through that page, and that page asks. Has the patient had a past history of malignancy? Have they had overwhelming serious infections? Do they have demyelinating issues? Do they have cardiac failure? Because TNF blockers, for instance, are a relative contraindication in people with um, heart failure, stage three or four heart, York heart association. So um, I do ask those questions. And then I go down the, the, that form and it does get into vaccination history. And yes. I, I would like all my patients to have an influenza vaccination annually. Yes. Um, a pneumococcal vaccination certainly is a good thing. Um, we avoid all live vaccines. And right now in Australia, we're getting, or it's available, but it's not um, PBS funded, but the 
um, Shingrix, I think Shingrix. it's called now. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's available and unfortunately it's quite expensive for people to self-fund, but I do mention that if they're happy to pay the funds for it, then then go for it. Um, and obviously I have a chat with the patients about avoiding live vaccines. So at the moment, obviously the Zostavax is a live vaccine and that's the one that comes up time and time again. Yeah. And of course yeah. in the new age, we're also asking now about COVID vaccinations. Yes, yeah, yes. And uh, oral polio, I guess that's not uh, something, and as people are travelling a lot, that's not happening at the moment, oral typhoid, yellow fever and so forth, they're all the live attenuated vaccines to watch out for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what about biosimilars? Do you have any thoughts about, about that, any feelings about biosimilars? Yeah, they're here. Um, they're here to stay. They will probably become a, a major source of um, prescriptions into the future. There are, I think the government certainly want us to be prescribing biosimilars because I think there is a slight um, economical gain by doing so. And I don't have a major problem with them. I would like to certainly see a bit more data. I don't think they've gone through the same rigorous uh, randomised control trials that the originals have had. Mm. Um, into the future, I think it's unavoidable that we will be prescribing biosimilars. And I'm not sure in the gastroenterology world, um, Luke, but, you know, for instance, Brenzis, which is a biosimilar to Atanasept, um, it's a lot easier at a busy practice to prescribe Brenzis because you don't have to go through all the paperwork. You have a streamlined authority code for Brenzis. So <laughs> there are some, yeah. I think... Encouragements. They're encouraging us, yes. Yeah, so so there are, and I think in a in a very busy practice that can be, um, you know, a seductive sort of. Yeah. Um, the paperwork is quite overwhelming, actually, isn't it? It's really it's it's um it's much a much bigger task than patients appreciate. Yeah, and I think I mean this is this is just one of my pet hates. The the PBS paperwork, for instance, to get onto an ankylosing spondylitis pathway, asks if they've done a certain degree of exercise for twelve weeks, and you have to tick. Um, about eight boxes on each week to get them there. So you sit there in front of a patient ticking like a ferociously mad. <laughs> Whereas I would have thought anyone with some sensibility would have said, have they completed a 12-week course? Yes, tick, no, tick. Um, yes. And so there is some really arduous paperwork that, that is involved in this and you get used to it. And I must admit that um, our computer software program handles it really nicely, but um it is a pain in the bum sometimes. Uh, it would be great if uh, if there was a little bit of, um, you know, kind of a new input into devising these forms and making it much easier for us and the patients. Um, it's very rare for the product to be denied, isn't it, as well, when you've assessed the patient. It, it's, you know, the denial of the product is very uncommon. It's just there's a process of having to pass through, which is very frustrating. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're so fortunate in Australia. So although I'm, I'm having a bit of a whinge, I, I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world. We have a very fortunate system with very lucky patients who don't even realise how lucky no, they are. No, no, that's true. It probably is the best system in the world. Um, well, what do you think the future is, Andrew? Is that, I, I've read a little bit about gene therapy and I don't process, I don't understand that exactly what, what they're referring to when they talk about that. And it, nanoparticle delivery of drugs, I'm not sure if that's got any future or why you'd even use it. But it, do, you, do you have any thoughts about where the future is going with rheumatology? There's been this incredible advance recently. Where are we heading to? I think, I think we're going to, in medicine, have 
um, a couple of challenges in terms of how do we use these explosion of drugs the, in the best way? How do we stratify which patients will, will go on to which drug? Because I'm sure you've had it in the, the IBD world too, where you can, you can put a patient on three different drugs and not get a response and then think, oh gosh, what's happening? Use a fourth drug for no good rationale other than it's the next yes. in the line mm. and they respond beautifully. Um, so I think one of the challenges going forward for us is not necessarily more and more drugs, although that's always nice. I think it's how do we rationally use the drugs? What are the pharmacogenomics? Why does John Smith respond to yeah. uh, adalimumab and Mrs. Jane responds only to an uh, IL-6 blocker? How to, how to personalise the therapy. Mm. Yeah, yes. better targeted. I, I think exactly. And I, I think that'll come down to pharmacogenomics. I think the other challenge we're going to have, we've sort of sat in this space in isolation for maybe five to 10 years, both with gastroenterology, maybe a bit of dermatology and rheumatology, but biologics are now transcending into immunology. They're transcending into mm. respiratory medicine. Yeah. Um, they're transcending into migraines. Yes. Um, and I think what's going to be really interesting is to see what happens when the dual agents get used, because certainly in rheumatology, when there have been very small trials of dual um, immunosuppressive um, biologics, you can run into huge problems with overwhelming sepsis, fungal infections, things that we don't want to see. So there may be some grappling into the future of um, your rheumatologist saying, I want to use this drug and the um, respiratory physician saying, no, we're going to use this drug and how to negotiate that, how to get some data out there to say what's safe in combination, I think is going to be a huge challenge going forward too, because I see biologics transcending just about every aspect of um, subspecialty medicine. Yeah, they are here to stay and they've made an incredible difference to the well-being of patients. And I think it's made it much easier to treat people and it's much we're much more optimistic, aren't we, about taking on difficult problems these days. Well, look, Andrew, thank you so much for going through that uh, so carefully and in such detail with me. I've very much enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Andrew, tell me, how, how are you coping with the, the lockdown? We're in our sixth lockdown. It looks like it's going to continue for quite some time. What, what are you doing to cope with that? I don't know. I think we just cope with it and we get on with life. I think it's been um, very challenging. I think the public, my patients, they're all starting to be very... Um, Fatigued of yeah. lockdown. Yeah. Um, yeah. I understand the government's perspective. I understand what's happening, how we cope with it. Our clinic has had to revolutionise what we do. I've, I know people are still seeing patients and I think that's absolutely fine. But one of my concerns is how do you actually cope with this with a huge immunosuppressed population? Do you open up your waiting rooms? Um, I've done a lot of telehealth, in fact, predominantly yeah. telehealth. Um, I have... I have concerns that, and you know what the media is like, that if you, your clinic hits the news as an immunosuppressed population being allowed to see their doctor and sit in waiting rooms, I, I think we're in for a really, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous time and I don't know the answer. Um, and I've thought the safety first, so I've really gone on to a telehealth approach and it, it has worked remarkably well. I think telehealth's here to stay as well. But it takes the fun out of medicine, Luke. I think it does. I agree. We enjoy going to work. We enjoy seeing our patients. We enjoy having a laugh with them. Yes. And sometimes I feel like I'm working at a call centre. Yeah, I agree. Andrew, look, thank thank you so much for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. And 
wish you all the very best, uh, as well as you know, with the upcoming uh, birth of your second child, and and that's going to be very exciting for you, Andrew. So thank thanks so much for uh, sharing that discussion today. Thank you. No worries. Thanks very much. Yeah. So glad to have Andrew join the podcast series. I've been wanting to interview him for a long time to discuss these very complex molecules and you can see his very clear thinking and logical approach uh, just makes him an expert rheumatologist and a tremendous uh, colleague to have in our um, southeastern region of Melbourne. Uh, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at giohealth.com.au.